0: Welcome to the Asbury Free Methodist Broadcast, where today we will be listening to this week's sermon by Pastor Brent Russell. We're going to look at this narrative in Luke's Gospel today, and as you know, Luke made a careful investigation of all the events surrounding Jesus, and he talked to eyewitnesses to compile his account. And this is one of the narratives that he chronicled. Earlier in chapter 7, Luke makes a point of telling us that crowds of people have seen his miracles and heard his teaching. Jesus had raised a widow's son from from death and there were a crowd of people around the funeral buyer um, rejoicing and saying, wow, there's a prophet among us. Scripture says earlier in the chapter, he cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind and that news spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So many, many people have heard the good news of Jesus. And many have repented, experienced the loving forgiveness of Jesus, and have become followers of the Messiah. And one of those people, I believe, is the woman in our narrative. She's well known in her community and probably... Most probably a prostitute, although it doesn't say that. Uh, There are very few other uh, occupations that would be called a sinner. Uh, And so she's here, and of course Simon the Pharisee has also heard the news about Jesus. Simon is a man of means, a man of station, a member of the Pharisee sect, and he has high social status. He would have been determined in his life to separate himself from anything deemed unclean under the Levitical law. So Simon has invited Jesus and other guests to his home for dinner. So when one of the Pharisees, uh, so here he is, um, Jesus at the Pharisee's house, and he's reclined at the table. I'll ask myself the question, why did Jesus accept an invitation to dinner? when the Pharisees were so opposed to him. Uh, as I pondered this, I remembered a story uh, from a couple of years ago. There was a guy by the name of John Gray, I follow him on Instagram along with a million other people. He's a pastor in South Carolina, and um, he is was a strong opponent of the then President Donald Trump. But he was asked to join Trump at the White House to work on prison reform, and he agreed to go. And he was heavily criticized for attending. But he asked himself the question, who did Jesus turn away from? And he invoked a Martin Luther King sentiment that said, we cannot influence a table that we're not seated at. So John Gray was not interested in the optics. He was interested in helping men and women in prison. And he needed to be at that meeting, at that table, to do it. Similarly, in order to speak to the hearts of people, Jesus did not turn away from people, He, even from his sharpest critics. He met with other Pharisees as well. You may remember Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Well, Jesus met him at night and urged him towards faith, a new birth, and eternal life. So Jesus knew the hearts of men and women. And the need even of this man, Simon. A woman of, uh, in that town who lived a sinful life shows up. It says, when Jesus was eating, this woman came in. She's a woman from the town with a reputation. She's called a sinner. She knows she will be scorned for entering the Pharisee's house. So it took real courage to come uninvited to the dinner party. But here she is with an alabaster jar of perfume coming in and straight to the feet of Jesus. Now this woman is prepared. She has an alabaster jar of perfume. She's going to anoint Jesus. Now that jar of perfumed oil in the first century would have been incredibly costly. It's delicate stuff. Probably traveled, transported by camel over long trade routes. And that's why I believe she has already encountered Jesus and put her faith in the Messiah, the Christ. So she came, because she came prepared to minister this perfume to him. And while she's there, her emotions overwhelm her. She begins to sob, weeping. The Greek word here is her tears are like rain. They're wetting Jesus' feet, and she lets her hair down. And in that time and in that culture for a woman to have her hair down, unfurled and flowing, that would have been both immodest and immoral, from especially from Simon's perspective. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, attempting to dry them, and she kisses his feet and anoints them with the costly perfume. Well, this woman has come to a place in her life where her love for Jesus Christ cannot be restrained. She's on her knees. She has understood the depths of her sin and the love and forgiveness of her Savior. And she's pouring out her soul in devotion to Jesus. Now, her contrite actions led to Simon's reaction and, uh, and he says, you know, if, this, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who was touching him, what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. But Simon didn't say this out loud. He was talking to himself. It's what we call these days self-talk, the interior life of the soul. Simon engages in a mental dialogue with his soul. He decides Jesus is not a prophet because touching a woman who was a sinner was breaking the Levitical law. And the woman, well, he already knows her. Her reputation in the community is well known. She's a sinner. In our hearts and minds, in our souls, we often debate situations. We have mental dialogues. Sometimes condemning people on first impressions without really knowing who they are. A Toronto pastor wrote in November last year, when tempted to judge, remember, we are not omniscient, so we don't have all the info. We are not objective, so self-interest infects us. We are not perfect, so our judgment is hypocritical. Let's stop playing God because we're not good at it and the position is already taken. Well, um, the little video that we saw this morning gives you a picture of how busy the mind is. We all have, are being influenced by the culture around us. All of the things, TikTok and YouTube and magazines and whatnot, radio. So the mind is busy, and we talk to ourselves about what we're hearing. And self-talk is not neutral. There's always a bias. And because we're egocentric, the bias is usually, how does this relate to me? Our thoughts can align with God and his word, or our personal desires, or the competing worldviews that surround us. But at any moment, you have the ability to step back And choose between which thoughts you will align yourself with and which thoughts you will reject. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's important that we, when we engage in self-talk, that we engage in biblical self-talk. Now, obviously, this is not the main focus of the passage in Luke, but I want to make one last point on the subject. In my experience, and I recognize we're all so very different, memorizing God's word is the first line of defense from negative self-talk and stinking thinking. Memorizing God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says God's word is living and active. It's sharper then a two-edged sword, it's able to penetrate even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And so when you memorize God's word, you can bring it to bear when your thoughts are heading in the wrong direction. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, whatever's true, whatever's noble, Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, if there's anything praiseworthy or excellent, think about those things. Now, Jesus knew Simon's thoughts, and he knows our thoughts. He is omniscient. We may think Simon's behavior as self-righteous and judgmental, but how often have we done the same? How often do our judgmental hearts go unchecked and unnoticed? The psalmist wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and know my heart. If you've uh, taken the second part of uh, Growing Character, he dives into this a little deeper and talks about it's painful, but it's an act of kindness when God reveals to us what's lurking in our hearts. And we have a chance to bring it before the light, repent of it, and change. So I ask you this morning, if, is there any thought process in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, that's keeping you from an intimate relationship with the Savior? Well, then Jesus engaged Simon in a heart-to-heart. He told him a parable. And you know parables, they compare two things. They take, they, Jesus used language and situations that people in the culture understood, compared two things, and drew out a spiritual truth from those two things. So uh, it says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells them this parable. We learn in Matthew's gospel that a denarii, is worth about a day's wage. So the first debtor owed about 50 days wages, 50 days of labor, and the second debtor about 500 days of labor. I was trying to think of of a picture that could sort of give us a little more insight into this, but so I came up with this little story. Let's say you're out backpack camping with your wife. It's a seven-day hike, you've got everything on your back. On day three, you slice your finger on a sharp knife, no problem. Your wife has a first aid kit, she pulls it out, puts a Band-Aid on it. You're grateful, she has a first aid kit and she's attended to your cut. Now let's say you're three days in and you take a serious fall, injure yourself badly. There's no 911 and your very life is at stake. Your wife makes a homemade stretcher, straps you on it, and hauls you over the rough terrain to safety. She has saved your life. Now you're beyond grateful. Let's say someone asks you, Jeff, if you were to judge which of these two actions you're most appreciative of, well, you wouldn't suppose what the greater debt of appreciation would be. You'd clearly know it. Your wife has saved you. Well, the money in the parable is an allegory to sin. Both were sinners, but one knew it and one did not. Sometimes we forget that we're all sinners, especially when we compare ourselves to others, as Simon did. But this parable really isn't about how much one has sinned. It's about recognizing that you are a sinner, and you owe a debt you cannot repay. And to the degree that you realize this, that's the degree you'll grasp and appreciate Jesus' gift of forgiveness. Jesus paid the debt for all our sins on the cross. But if there was a scale that could be used to measure the number or magnitude of sins that you committed during your life, How would you compare to other people? You might think, well, that's not worth considering because he did indeed pay the entire debt. But the fact of the matter is that the rank that you assign yourself determines the amount you love him. Paul, the apostle, measured his sin and ranked himself. Paul said in in his letter to Timothy and to us all, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul considered himself, ranked himself, as the worst of sinners. Now, uh, several years ago, um, I was pastoring in Verona, and on a Sunday morning, um, an Aboriginal woman uh, arrived. Her name was Dorothy. She was coming from Manitoulin Island, and she was heading to Kingston Penitentiary to visit her grandson. She worshipped with us that morning. I had her come up to the platform and tell us, her story. And afterwards, she asked me if I would visit her grandson in the Kingston Pen. Uh, So I agreed and I got, uh, over the next couple of days, I got clearance. Um, And uh, how many of you have been in the Kingston Pen? Uh, Hopefully not for a heinous crime. As you know, uh, it is now a tourist attraction. But back when I was serving in Verona, um, it was um, the worst of the worst. And um, the people in this grim place, and it was grim, uh, were convicted of serious crimes. And the chaplain at that time was a fellow named Claude, and he invited me to to lead a, a service on Sunday evenings. And as a result of that, I got to meet a bunch of guys who were incarcerated for the worst of crimes. And I also knew a second chaplain, and he told me that a question he had often been asked was, how can Jesus forgive me for the heinous crimes I've committed? And this chaplain graciously referred them to the passage I just read to you and explained that Paul considered himself to be the worst of sinners. And he was shown mercy as an example to those who find themselves in the same condition. Now, these men had committed big crimes, big sins. You have to commit big sins to be forgiven much. Some of you know Matthew Henry was a commentator from the 1600s. And he says this, There's no such thing as a small sin because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. There's no such thing as a small sin because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. No one who repents is beyond the reach of the love and forgiveness of the Savior. And to the degree that you recognize the depths of this debt that has been paid is the degree to which you will appreciate the gift of forgiveness. Well, then uh, Jesus turned towards the woman and said, Simon. I like that uh, little picture. Jesus turned towards the woman and said, to Simon. See, Simon didn't really see that woman, but Jesus did. He turned to her. He recognized her as a person made in God's image. And Jesus says, you know, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't... And the common courtesies of that time period in that community were not given to Jesus. Simon should have greeted him with a kiss. Simon should have had someone wash his feet, his dusty feet. Simon should have anointed his head with oil, but he chose not to. Why? Why was Jesus not given those common courtesies? And I think the reason, I'm not Simon, but my perspective would be that he didn't think Jesus could do anything for him. He already had everything he needed. He was a man of means and status. He had separated himself from anything that was deemed unclean. He felt nothing for Christ. His orderly life was impervious to the love of the Savior and to a thrust of grace. What could Jesus do for him? Well, Pastor Brent recently taught us from the letter uh, to the Church of Laodicea. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. When Jesus knocks and we invite him into our house, into our lives, are we like Simon? Do we think, there's not a lot that I need? I've worked hard for everything I have, and I'm not really a bad person. Or do we see the depths of the debt we owe him? Do we see ourselves? as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? I think that's how the woman in the story welcomed him, with love and gratitude and deep humility, recognizing who she was before him. There was a beautiful hymn written in 1835 by Charlotte Elliot. She was an invalid, suffered from weakness and depression She felt useless when a visiting preacher asked her if she had peace with God. She resented the question. But a few days later, she invited the preacher back, apologized, and said, I want to clean up my life and become a Christian. He told her, come just as you are. She penned a hymn with some of the words from the Laodicean church. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need. In thee I find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. I love this hymn because Charlotte Elliot was keenly aware of her sin. And true worship flourishes best when we're deeply aware of our indwelling sin and our indebtedness to Christ. True worship is realized when we see our sin, recognize it, and our indebtedness and the glory of Christ. Well, Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Only twice in the Gospels does Jesus uh, basically send a person away with those words. The first was the woman who had been slowly bleeding for 12 years, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Same as he said to, to, to the woman in our narrative. Both women had had a deep moment of communion with Jesus, and now it was time to go. Jesus said, go. Go and become a nucleus of blessing and mercy and peace in your own centers of influence. But the Greek word here really means go into peace. Young's literal translation of the Bible says, Thy faith has saved thee, be going on to peace. Go your way, a blessed and forgiven woman, and don't be troubled by the censures and scorn of other people. Go into a place of peace. Peace with God and peace with yourself. Friends, the blessing of forgiveness is peace. We were once far away, strangers to the gospel, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. Thanks for joining us this week on Asbury Free Methodist Broadcast. Make sure to visit our website at asburyfmperth.com where you can subscribe and never miss a show. If you would like this broadcast, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Asbury Free Methodist Church. Until next week, take care and God bless.